Hello and welcome to the Hindu Scholar. My name is Abhinav Lakshman. This week we'll be discussing the debate around the age of consent with Shraddha Chaudhary, a PhD researcher with the Faculty of Law in University of Cambridge, and Bharti Ali, the executive director and co-founder of the Hak Center for Child Rights. Let me just begin with, uh, firstly, I just want to start with, uh, given both of your works, how should the debate in uh, India be uh, set centered around as far as reducing the age of consent is concerned? Should it be looked at from a psychological perspective as to at what age children are able to make these decisions about their lives? Or should it be legal, autonomy-wise? What should it uh, be, uh, which perspective should be taken? So we'll start with uh, Shraddha and then we'll go to Bhavi. Uh, yeah, hi. Uh, I think I think surely we can't and shouldn't think of the debate in one of these terms or another of these terms, but we need to take an integrated and holistic approach, not just because it's more efficient, but really there's no other way to do it. Like you said, you mentioned autonomy in the context of law, but really can we understand and define what autonomy signifies and what it should mean without considering things like cognitive capacity and psychosocial maturity, emotional development, other things like that. So, in fact, I'd say that we need a lot more axes in this debate. You need to think of neurobiological factors of adolescence, experiential, even economic in some instances might be relevant. The most important thing probably has to be to keep the discussion practical in terms of what it is that we're trying to achieve, you know, do we understand what it is we're trying to achieve, all the elements of it? Is the law, especially criminal law, the appropriate way to achieve it? What are the externalities that are likely to occur with criminal law? And what are the other policy or, you know, legal uh, support bases that we can create to make any criminal law changes or steps we take actually practical? As long as we make sure that these uh, practical limitations or considerations define our debate, I think we should make sure to otherwise make it as holistic and intersectional as possible. Uh, right. Uh, what about uh, Bharti? Like, uh, what is your, where are you coming from as far as this, where this debate should be centered around? Yeah, I will agree with uh, whatever Shraddha has said, uh, you know, because this is not an issue that you can approach with any one uh, perspective. You need to have a multi-pronged uh, approach to the whole issue. Uh, it lies, I mean, it has dimensions that lie in uh, the social context of uh, children and adolescents in in. Uh, what are the uh, economic situation uh, of these families? Uh, that background is very important. Besides looking at psychological factors as well as changes in the body, biological changes, hormonal changes in the body, and other things. Uh, so I think it require it definitely requires a multidisciplinary approach, a multi-pronged approach. Uh, the more legalistic we make it, uh, we tend to run the risk of criminalizing certain decisions or choices adolescents make. Uh, I don't think the debate here is about the right choice or the wrong choice. The fact is that, uh, as Shraddha said, we have to 
we have to look at the practicality of the situation and the reality and 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 uh children do engage in uh sexual activity at a certain in age you know so are we going to criminalize them because the law wishes to take a certain course and i will also say that uh, you know we've become very protectionist in our effort to protect children from harm by criminalizing them i don't see ourselves protecting them anymore so while we understand the need to ensure that every child up to the age of 18 years uh should be entitled to all rights including the right to protection from any form of harm the fact is that children have evolving capacities which need to be recognized and we cannot be making laws that actually are uh criminalizing them and taking those very protections away so that is where i uh would like everyone to uh think a little more are we in the name of protection actually taking that very protection away uh through law there's a certain requirement of law in law in the country and they they have a certain significance and importance uh which uh, needs to be uh you know maintained but as i said uh law at the cost of criminalizing is a question we need to consider if i could just uh, sorry briefly add to that i think i think that's absolutely correct everything that bharti said and i just wanted to add that a lot of times the criminalizing approach of the law especially if you look at the boxo which uh, also requires people to mandatorily report any um, known instances of sexual interaction involving an adolescent or a child as the case may be the that approach of the law also prevents us from actually having a more holistic discussion or debate on this subject because it's so difficult to generate data on this point when the moment you come to know about uh, any instance like this you have to report it so not only can you not help the adolescent in case they need help whether it's you know uh, psychological or mental social support you also can't um, study these trends so you a lot of the discussions that we're having right now are either anecdotal or they're based on evidence from other countries and that completely misses the sort of cultural context of india which is so important and and you know that's a major limitation that is caused by the current approach of the law the sort of totalizing criminalization right i understand so coming to the lack of data and empirical knowledge uh, going forward in this uh, in this debate and settling this uh, i would like to point out both of you have agreed that a holistic approach is the the need of the hour right now uh, to examine this question and a lot of the cases a lot of the judgments that have come in these poxo matters uh, holding the importance of uh, you know teenagers being able to give consent they have been in individual cases so a trial has happened and then a judge has decided that okay this is a consensual matter so we do not need to prosecute it or sentence this person as such so th- this is an ad hoc matter that will take case to case trials take a long time in this country what other way can we uh, you know figure out a way to in in which instance how how do we let's say measure consent or uh, how do we differentiate a consensual interaction with let's say an instance of an adult grooming a minor so uh, how do we go about these questions right now is abharti so uh, you know abhinay there is data which is 
you know, whatever little data, uh, which is uh, telling us a lot. And the fact is that, uh, you know, with reporting being mandatory and age of consent being raised to 18, you know, whenever, as Shraddha said, whenever children are uh, or adolescents are approaching service providers for any intervention, the biggest fear is that it will get reported. Now, the thing is that even if the schools, let's say schools, hospitals, uh, counselors were to report these cases, are we saying that the law must make it mandatory on every person to pursue a legal case? Can you force me to file a legal complaint if I am not interested in filing a legal complaint? So that's a very important question. And I think at the station, at, at the very level of the police station, I think, uh, you know, some measures have to be built in to ensure that when a, a report is made and the girl or the boy are interacted with or interviewed by the police, uh, those interviews should not be carried out by the police in the first place. The first interview should be done by the social worker or the support person and we have those provisions in law there are supposed to be two social workers with every special juvenile police unit we haven't uh, recruited them unfortunately there are supposed to be support persons uh, under the POXO Act and uh, we have uh, given them the mandate unfortunately only after FIR is filed and not at the stage when the FIR is, is about to be filed but these are people who can be brought in to interview and interact with the, uh, the child or the adolescent and ascertain whether uh, they wish to pursue a complaint or not and what are their reasons, whether there is, uh, you know, whether they, they, there has been consensual sexual activity, whether that consensual uh, intimacy was exploitative or non-exploitative. Those are factors can be ascertained at that point of time. And no way can a person be forced to pursue a legal case. So much of evidence now with uh, research done by Huck uh, and Faxe, research done by uh, Enfold Proactive Trust, uh, research done by Tulir, all telling us that these are cases where girls are turning hostile in the courts and they are ending up in acquittals. So why are we forcing them to pursue the legal complaint and also burdening our courts, not just the court, the, court, the entire system. There's expenditure and cost involved to all of this, which we need to be cognizant of. Uh, so, you know, my, my take is that uh, we should not force people to f pursue legal cases. Um, the other take about grooming, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, this grooming thing, uh, you know, uh, can be taken to any extent. Unfortunately, we are a country where, uh, you know, from uh, Dharmendra trying to woo Hema Malini and uh, now the new actors, uh, you know, the, the industry has only taught us that you have to stalk, you have to follow, you have to keep pursuing if you really like someone. Uh, and, and, and then it has taken different forms and shapes. So, uh, grooming, you know, itself requires work outside the ambit of law where we can educate children and adolescents, where we can, uh, you know, educate families as well, because sometimes a child, uh, you know, feels that there is, uh, you know, some kind of grooming happening and also shares with the parent, but the parents don't take it seriously enough, you know. So there's a lot of education and awareness required at that end. The law cannot deal with grooming 
uh, as such. And then the, what the law at best can do is that if tomorrow someone feels that this is how it all led to uh, the incidents of abuse, then they should be free enough to keep to come back to law and take recourse in law. That's the best that the law can offer. Today, you may not feel you are being groomed, but tomorrow you may realize that, you know, this is what uh, was happening and it led to something really unwanted and unnecessary and you want to report it. You should have that uh, leeway in the law. That's my take. Right. Uh, so, Bharti, since you spoke about, uh, you know, at one stage of intervention, while the complaint is being made, the consideration that uh, social workers will be there to speak and figure out whether a complaint needs to be made at all or not. But that is something that we are considering, like there will be at some point a certain age, a legal age of consent. Right now, it's 18 in India. Even if it is reduced, it will be 16. The point is, um, at some level, uh, this question is for Shraddha, at some level, uh, there has to be a decision that uh, the state is making as to at which age uh, can a person be competent enough to, to give consent, right? Because at the end of the day, that's what age of consent is, that uh, beyond this age, you are competent to give consent and below that, you are not. So, to what extent do we have to, I mean, uh, like, more biological evidence, we already have that competence of giving consent comes earlier than 18, much earlier than 18 in some cases, and it's varied uh, across geographies, across uh, socioeconomic indicators. So, uh, how do we address that, uh, Like, At some point, the age of consent will be there. If, if it's not 18 today, it will be 16. So, how, how do we go about that? Uh, yeah, so if you don't mind, just before I answer that question specifically, I just wanted to add on to something that Bharti said in response to your last question. Um, again, I completely agree with uh, what she's saying about how much of our response uh, would be better suited if it's extra legal rather than strictly legal and especially criminal. But to the extent that we want some sort of legal response, the the important question to answer really is why do we think that it is children and adolescents only who can be groomed or why is it that we think that those are the kinds of grooming that need special attention? Now, I'm not saying that you need to look into adult grooming as well. I'm just saying that there's a reason that we seem to be focused on children and adolescents when it comes to the buzzwords of grooming as well as exploitation, right? So it's probably important for us to then have a discussion and understanding of what we mean by the vulnerabilities that lead, the special adolescent vulnerabilities that lead to our understanding of, uh, you know, grooming of adolescents or exploitation of adolescents as distinct from that of adults. Once we understand this, it might be possible for us to, in some sense, code it into the law. But no matter what you do, there are going to be externalities, which is exactly what Bharti was saying. Now, uh, to come to your question about age of consent, you're right in saying that uh, for ease of convenience, we might have to indicate some sort of ages or draw some lines. And no matter where we draw the line, there are going to probably be issues because there are some people who, who won't be covered by it. And in some instances, too many people will be covered by it. So. Um, Regardless of that, I think there is a very strong case for reconfiguring the age of consent and how we understand it in the first place. So instead of saying outright that we should reduce it to 16 or 15 or 14 or 12 or any of these things, 
we first need to ask you know when is consent relevant and what are the questions that go behind understanding the relevance of consent so after all we need to know consent to what consent to whom and in what circumstances and our answer as to age and capacity might differ based on these questions and the answers to them and i think any age of consent should be context sensitive in this sense so rather than saying that if you are under 16 if you are 15 years and whatever 11 months uh, you can't consent but if you are 16 years and a month then you can consent it's better to look at it in terms of of course first of all broadly the capacity which will help you determine ages but different capacities for different kinds of activities for different kinds of circumstances might help us have uh, an understanding of consent which is more reflective of the developing capacities of adolescents which is something that bharti referred to uh, right at the beginning as well so that might be a way of resolving or at least partly addressing the issue of the sort of the problems that come with having one single bright line approach to consent right uh, sorry uh, shraddha were you about to say something else? no i i wanted to add to what shraddha just said right but you know the the age of consent uh, prior to uh, enactment of poxo act was 16 in the indian penal code and uh, you know uh, cases were still being registered they were being argued in court of course uh, the accused got a defense when it came to uh, 16 and above cases and even with that defense it's not that we never had convictions uh, you know because that is a matter of saying that okay we were in a consenting relationship and i i'm i, I would i wish to use it as my defense but it does not in any way take away from uh, the facts that if the victim's testimony uh, you know gives confidence to the court then irrespective of that age of consent uh, the court will go go with that evidence and will give it the first preference compared to any other corroborating evidence so uh, let's not get confused with this whole or get paranoid with this whole notion of uh, lowering the age of consent it was 16 it can still be 16 and uh, on ground where there is a very clear violation where there is exploitation in a consensual sexual re- relationship the law will still address it we are not asking of lowering the age of child it's about lowering the age of consent and since we as shraddha said you know uh, there are so many nuances to be uh, taken into consideration at this point of time i don't think we have enough research to uh, inform us whether it should be 14 or 16 and you know uh, how do we sort of make differences between uh, the different circumstances and situations even if it is 14 or 16 or where both the uh, uh, the the uh, victim and the accused are minors you know those are areas that require a lot more research before we can uh, take a call but as of now given the current situation i'm sure one decision can be taken which is re- lowering the age of consent to 16 as it was in the ipc prior to the proxo act yeah and you know that also gives us another insight into what again like we we've spoken about what it is that the law is trying to achieve 
through criminal law you can't save adolescents from heartbreak you can't save them from relationships that are perhaps unfair that are in other ways morally problematic but not wrongful or harmful enough to to merit criminal action so that's a threshold that the court deals with all the time with adults and used to deal with um, with you know people between the ages of 16 and 18 as well so it's not going to be something new and something unforeseen for the court to suddenly have to do it's the same rules of evidence it's just that there are some special procedures that are given to um to the to the cases that are tried under the poxo act and it's it's not impossible for courts to figure out what has happened whether whether what what is before them is a genuinely consensual case or whether it's um a case of grooming it's really a question of collecting evidence and again this is not to say that the that the process will be foolproof but there is a process in place and what we need perhaps is more sensitive assessment of consent which was one of the concerns when the poxo act was introduced in the first place the idea was that children or minors shouldn't have to undergo the kind of consent assessment that women frequently have to undergo but that's you know that's a roundabout way to address the issue after all if there's something wrong with the way consent is being assessed then that's where we need to be focusing our energies rather than saying let it be insensitive consent assessment but let's just yield minors from having to undergo it right uh, so since both of you have now spoken about fluidity and there is a need that okay not necessarily a uh, you know a concrete line at an age uh, for consent would work and this fluidity is something that courts have also uh, also recognized and they have been recognizing there have been different cases of different ages of minors where courts have seen the evidence and ruled that it was a consensual encounter and uh, let it go my point is how to codify this fluidity in law because in law there would still need to be a, a red line right and um, what what possible solutions could there be to maybe eventually codify some kind of a fluidity for consent in the law itself abhide if you're looking for a specific answer then i don't know if that's possible for us to give without like bharti said far more research on the subject um like we said there are different models available right now that you can think of but no model should be accepted blindly without looking at how well it fits so i mean principally yes the first thing to do is to recognize the fluidity uh, of capacities of consent and to see how it can be coded into the law so one way to do it might be to have different ages of consent for different kinds of activities but that's again something that needs to be looked into far more and to see the actual practices that are taking place before we go and do something like that and the second thing obviously would be to recognize that no matter how uh, you know strongly you word the law and how much of a bright line you draw there's always going to be discretion being exercised as i mean the beginning of this podcast was by talking about the cases where courts have stepped in despite the fact that the poxo doesn't give room for discretion the courts have stepped in to say you know what these cases shouldn't merit criminal punishment and you know we're stepping in and we're not going to continue this criminal prosecution so obviously discretion is still being exercised and and probably that's a good thing because it helps the injustice uh, you know to prevent injustice in these cases the concerns around discretion being exercised are that no matter what you do some degree of human biases are going to seep into the way that, that it's exercised 
so probably you need some sort of guidelines to help um you know the discretion take place in a way that still accounts for these biases or tries to undo them or tries to mitigate them at least and some sort of accountability of the discretionary um processes like with courts you have the fact that judgments are reported on and other people can look at them higher courts can look at them there are avenues of appeal so similarly uh, no matter where whether at the police station or at the prosecutor's office or at the judges uh, chambers wherever you introduce discretion the importance the important thing would be to have certain guidelines in place and certain measures for accountability in place and this in combination with some sort of fluid understanding of age of consent will probably could probably be a first step like a concrete step towards what you are asking but again i have to say that all of this is subject to a better understanding of what's actually happening on the ground which i think right now we don't have mm-hmm. okay uh, i'm happy so as i said earlier you know um, the first level is at the police station itself where uh, you know someone who interviews the child and is able to figure out whether the child wants to proceed with a complaint or not uh, and 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 the reasons therefore can uh, you know help the police in the, in taking the next call of filing an fir once that is done a lot of cases of those who are 16 and above need not necessarily be converted into an fir so that's one stage uh the second stage is that if an fir is still registered uh and and during the investigation the police finds that there is a non exploitative consensual intimacy then uh they can file a final report and that can go to the court the courts then can uh call uh you know the witness the the, the adolescent or the child the adolescent actually and and verify you know if uh, you know the if there is any change in the situation or the stance and then uh, accordingly uh, close the case uh, so that is another possibility happening at the level of the court where the court also verifies and then closes the case there may still be cases you know which continue through the trial and towards the end of the trial it is discovered that uh, you know there there were other pressures working on the child on the adolescent and uh, you know that is how the case uh, continued and was pursued so that's uh, where the courts unfortunately today don't have a discretion because once you know it is a statutory offense they have to go by what is laid down in the statute uh, where the minimum sentence is 10 years for penetrative sexual assault and 20 years if it's aggravated penetrative sexual assault now the aggravated penetrative sexual assault one of the uh, uh, you know in the definition if you look at it one of the uh, ingredients is where there has been repeated sex and in a romantic relationship there will be repeated sex so invariably all of them get booked as aggravated sexual uh, penetrative sexual assault and the courts are left with no discretion there but to give a minimum of 20 years so uh, you know you we have to look at three things together mandatory reporting and if we can have guidelines around that uh you know to ensure that mandatory reporting uh may uh, will def- will lead to reporting to police but may not necessarily lead to a legal complaint and a perusal of a legal case in the court uh but at the same time will ensure that the adolescent receives all the support and services required then 
The next is about, you know, um, lowering the age of consent and decriminalizing at different stages, as uh, I've just mentioned. And the third is also, uh, you know, um, doing away with the, with the strict liability and the minimum mandatory sentences that have been built into the law, which leaves the judges with no discretion at all. So the three aspects that need to be worked with and on uh, legally. Otherwise, we need to, uh, you know, irrespective of whether we change the law, we don't change the law and we take 10 years, 10 more years to gather evidence to finally decide on what changes we need to make. At the moment, what is very, very essential and critical is that we should not be taking away any support, any reproductive and sexual health services and access to those services from adolescents who need it. Just because... You know, um, the law says that a case has to be pursued. You can't deny those services. Right, I understand. Uh, Shraddha, I just last, uh, I want to ask you one last question. So we are, we are again having this uh, debate and these arguments about reducing age of consent in some sort of a void where we still need a lot more information about trends, about what's happening, how adolescents are developing in so different socioeconomic conditions. So. If the government were to decide to conduct a study tomorrow, what do you think is essential for us to find out number one, two, three, in order to even progress uh, towards a better understanding of consent and having a law around it? I think the if we are prioritizing certain things, then probably the first thing that we need more and better information on is what kind of practices, sexual practices are adolescents engaging in? Because we do know that they are engaging in different kinds of sexual interactions. So what kinds of interactions are they engaging in and at what ages, as well as what is the impact that these interactions have on them? So there are a lot of studies like these in the Western context, but um, almost none in India. We focus a lot on things like how much do adolescents know about condom use, about HIV prevention, about pregnancy and so on, which are important, of course. But we know very little about what these relationships and sexual interactions mean to adolescents and how they impact them in the short run as well as in the long run. That information can help us meaningfully um, characterize these relationships as you know non-harmful and non-wrongful and also then perhaps recognize uh, trends of grooming and exploitation that are going on because until you until you figure out what is normal it's not possible to consider what is not normal because you need some sort of baseline and right now i think our baseline is completely anecdotal which is fine i mean that's not Sometimes anecdotal evidence is very valuable and, and for immediate action, for mitigating action, like Bharti said, that's that's enough. But long term, perhaps uh, these things would be quite helpful for us to know. I would just add that, you know, uh, there's some research that has happened in the past, uh, again, not uh, sufficient on, uh, you know, why children are running away, you know, um, to be with their chosen partner why adolescents are running away. So I think that is an area, uh, you know, where some more work needs to be done and some some programs and interventions need to be uh, put in place. Uh, we see a lot of domestic violence. We see dysfunctional families. 
you know, I mean, and adolescence being an age where you're really looking for some bonding and you to be losing out on that bonding with your parents and family is a huge uh, trauma. And then to be finding that bonding with someone and yet not being allowed, uh, you know, adds more stress. So that entire phase, I think, needs to be really um, studied and documented well. Uh, besides, uh, what are the tools that parents and, and, and adolescents help? You know, uh, we haven't really uh, done enough on coping uh, skills for adolescents, for instance. And we see today there is so much aggression all around amongst adul adults, amongst children, amongst adolescents, with, with the coping skills reducing day in and day out. Uh, so we need to really look at, you know, what are those patterns, you know, where anger management, coping skills, uh, you know, those that's a whole area to be uh, researched uh, and, and uh, to work on. Then parenting skills, you know. Do our parents really know how to have conversations with their adolescents around sexual and reproductive health? Do they even have any conversations? I know um, boys, for instance, uh, you know, never have these uh, conversations with their, with their uh, family uh, members. They get it all from their peers. Uh, girls, the only conversation they have is about menstruation and, you know, uh, that's that's it. And that, that too is very limited to, you know, okay, I need my stock for this month. Uh, nothing beyond that, really. So, you know, those are areas on which we really need to start uh, doing some more research, micro as well as macro. What uh, is happening inside the families? How are we... Uh, addressing mental health issues as well as sexual and reproductive rights uh, issues in the families and uh, communities. Yeah, just one uh, that that reminded me of one more really important aspect that we need to look into and probably also address uh, within our understanding of the law, which is how social norms around um, sex, sexuality, uh, and all these things how they really lead adolescents to make decisions which may not be optimal for them. So from what we see in a lot of the data that has been that have been gathered, a lot of adolescents elope and either already by the time the the case comes to the attention of the criminal justice system, either they're already married or they are going to get married. And that then almost inevitably leads to the end of the case. So there is a sort of channeling effect that the law also and the, the way that it operates also has on adolescents in pushing them towards marriage. Now, we've spoken about how um, adolescents do have the developing uh, capacities to engage in different sexual interactions. And um, it's worth considering whether it's in their best interest for each of these sexual interactions to actually have to end in marriage. And what impact that would have on their lives in terms of, you know, also perhaps setting them on the path of early motherhood and or parenthood and other responsibilities that they may not be well equipped for. So um, the social norms around sex and sexuality, which along with the functioning of the law, which sort of push uh, people towards marriage rather than exploring sexuality qua sexuality and which um, which don't accept um, sexual expression outside the acceptable norms of family and community approved marriage. These norms 
um, really, I think, force the hand of adolescents and push them into a life stage which perhaps would be better um, uh, postponed but but there's no choice because otherwise they have no social acceptability and they'll they are far more likely to be punished by the law so that's another thing i mean that's not something on which we need research per se but that's something that the law needs to consider as well is that how are we making it more difficult for adolescents to exercise the sexual autonomy that they do have right that is what i was going to come to like as a wrapping up thing uh, as a society like uh, uh, we need to be ready to have these conversations uh, we need to be ready to let the children have these children slash adolescents have these conversations openly even if we do broach the idea of a survey uh, the adolescents participating in the survey need to be confident in, so that they're truthful in the information that they're providing for us to assess. So, I mean, how close do you think Indian society we are right now and to that? And, you know, how how close are we to that? <laughs> I think we're miles away from that, honestly. I'm, there are studies in which adolescents come forward and talk about it. But with the taboo now, I'm not sure. I mean, with mandatory reporting requirements, I don't know how honestly adolescents can talk about it anymore. The second thing is, uh, I mean, I don't think it's not just about the age at which sexuality is being expressed, but it's the factum of sexuality outside marriage itself that seems to be a social problem. And it's something that is by and large not accepted. I mean, how many parents are okay with their adult children having sex outside of marriage within within the family home? I would think that that's certainly not a majority of the population, or even or even a strong percentage of it. So, so these social norms would need to change before we can see any progress uh, towards a more sort of uh, towards a space where adolescents can safely exercise their sexuality and sexual autonomy. Because I think one of, I mean, right now, one of the major um, hurdles and or even threats to the exercise of adolescent sexual autonomy is, um, are these social norms around sexuality and marriage. True. And I, I mean, it's, I think we need to really uh, build a narrative around delinking age of consent with age of marriage uh, and, and sex with marriage. Uh, because sex happens outside of marriage at all ages. Uh, so we need to really look at that. Um, and then there are cultural differences as well. So, I mean, if we were to look at a, a number of tribal communities where uh, which are far more open to, uh, uh, you know, sexuality and sex compared to, uh, you know, uh, some of, I, I will say... Uh, you know, the cow belt uh, feudal communities uh, of the north. So we need to really look at, uh, you know, these cultural differences as well. Uh, and the, the idea of looking at cultural differences is not to say that we should not be promoting uh, safe uh, sexual practices. We should not, we should allow, uh, you know, teenage pregnancies. It's not, it's not about that. It's about how the law should... Uh, address you know the, the 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 choices adolescents are making and uh, you know uh, how there are different practices which also need to be borne in mind when laws are being made right uh, thank you so much for participating in the discussion thank you 